This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and I'm here with my faster-than-a-speeding C5 co-host, Jon. Should I be scared of any traffic meet sensor meter thingies for evading maximum speeds or something like that? I mean, you should be scared of many things. Um, oh, that's curves, a very negative view of life. Small hills. Small hills. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, but we're going to first kick off and uh, talk a little bit about open source projects and ownership. So there was a, a VentureBeat article uh, which initiated this conversation talking about um, actually, you know, basically, yeah, do people own open source projects or do companies own open source projects? Of course, this is a there's a wide variety of opinions and there's a wide variety of different kind of approaches. This article is actually written by one of the co-founders of the Presto project, um, who has a, a specific view in mind. But you know, I've I've worked for a number of open source based uh, companies over my time. So um, Red Hat, Canonical, Hortonworks, Cloudera, and now Grafana Labs. And they all have definitely have very different, subtly different in some cases, but different views on open source um, ownership, project ownership, code ownership in some cases. So the, the term open source gets bounced around a lot. And you can, you know, if you go to the... Uh, the extremes of, uh, you know, someone like uh, Richard Stallman, like he has a very clear view on what is open source and what is an approved open source license and things like that. But the sort of, for many people, the core of open source uh, is just that, like the, the source code of something is open and available. And that's, in my mind, that's like a, the, the lowest possible bar to entry to something being open source. But that doesn't really cover the topic of ownership. And ownership and open source is a like a particularly strange kind of concept because when you in many cases when you're contributing to open source, you're literally sharing code and saying, you know, here's here's what I've done. Go and take this, take this onwards you know do do whatever you will with it in many cases you're not you're almost abdicating ownership when you contribute something to open source in some ways well it's a donation thing right i mean yeah. if you contribute something to open source you're basically saying okay from potential most often enlightened self-interest i need something in this project nobody else is going to write it okay i'm skilled enough i can write it i'll give it to them and now hopefully they will accept and maintain it for me. So you definitely do it with a hope of some return in mind quite often. I mean, on the other hand, yeah. and that of course comes back to the title here of who owns it, because oftentimes people are actually paid by companies, commercial entities to specifically yeah. create things for that open source. But then again, that company has in its head, of course, some kind of return on that investment. Altruism is nice, but kind of rare in this world there's always something there yeah. again if you allow the people to benefit from the effort nothing wrong with that i mean why would you say no but still it becomes a donation to that project 
And whoever, I'm not going to answer the question yet, owns that project gets full rights and whatever on the code you just donated. That's how it works. In many cases, yeah. The the sort of the interesting thing is is how people think about ownership. So you, you mentioned there are often many sort of there are oftentimes there are organizations behind certain projects. Um, so we we've talked a number of times about the Apache Software Foundation and you know their approach to governing software projects in a way that uh, ensures that there is a vibrant community of contribution, not just siloed with one particular organization. Now that's just one method of governance. Yeah, um, but there are just other... constructed that. That's yeah. governance. That's no way of taking ownership or even pretending Correct. to take ownership. There's a governance. It's the idea. It's kind of opposite. As a project, you can become Apache approved if you if you like if you keep certain guidelines. So it's more of a uh, a quality brand of marking or something like that than anything to do with the ownership, right? It is, but I think the two are also reasonably closely related. The the community behind um, a, a project, you know, the, if the governance says that you must have a, uh, a diverse set of uh, committers, for example, which is the kinds of things that mm -hmm. the ASF um, kind of mandates, yeah. then the ownership is, mm -hmm. is somewhat more or can be somewhat more um, diluted. And this is same thing, the difference right? between open source ownership. It's they're committing, it, it they're do donating. They they're not investing. It's not an investment. No, but <laughs> but they do have more control. So like committers versus contributors. Like committers control more of the direction of a project. They control what contributions they accept and what contributions they don't accept. Mm -hmm. So you can steer. You know, if you are a an organization that has a commercial offering based on an open source project, for example, you can steer things so that you don't accept open source code contributions that may uh, negatively impact your commercial offering, for example. That's uh, pretty commonplace in, in kind of projects. And you can only do that if you have control over that project. Now, again, control is not Strictly speaking, ownership, uh -huh. but I do think those those the two are very closely related. Yeah, but I think for open source, there's a difference there because if you think control, you're going from a point of view that I have the power to break or stop or remove something. So if people don't listen to me, they will lose something. That is pure control in the strictest sense of the word for me. The control for the committers is more of a meritocracy kind of thing because they commit a lot and people respect them because they have added a lot of stuff to the project, they kind of naturally get a bigger say. But if for some reason a committer starts going off the deep end, I mean, people are people, stuff happens, yep. they will lose that control in the blink of an eye because they lost the respect. They lost the community backing at that point. So it's basically a control or ownership, if you like, by committee, by, by general consensus of approval. It's not a hard, this is mine, and if you don't do what I say, I will take it away from you. They don't have that control. Mm. 
but the 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 article then talks about um this concept of forklifting and while i i am aware of the the process it talks about i'd never heard the the term forklift in terms of open source project lifecycle but they're talking about uh, so the 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 co-creator of this of the presto project uh, and the article's author is uh, Martin Traverso. So he talks about the fact that um, when you know the, a number of people co-created the Presto project during their time at Facebook, and it was open source at that point. It was open. It was an open source project initially at Facebook and continued to be so. But when they all left, like all of the co-creators left Facebook, and they decided to fork the project to a, a new open source project called Trino. Now, for some reason, that has never registered me. I've, I was aware of Presto previously, mm -hmm. but Trino I, I had completely passed me by. So I don't know what the timeline was between Presto and Trino, but the they 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 coined this phrase kind of forklift by it wasn't just a fork of the code. They were actually, you know, in their in their eyes at least, very successful in, it wasn't just the code, it was all of the uh, creators and maintainers and by and large the entire apparently community also moved across to this project, leaving Presto as, as a sort of a, uh, a punctuation um, sort of on the, the journey of the the what was presto now trino kind of project and that all sort of future development at least you know according to uh, the author here it really did happen in in trino and all future sort of focus was really on trino and i find that a little bit strange i i mean you we've seen things like this happen before at least to some sort of certain extent. So you see things like uh, MariaDB and um, and MySQL. Yon, before we started talking, you mentioned uh, OpenOffice, LibreOffice. Um, there's plenty not, more. Definitely not the you first. Parkula and Boreos. You have uh, mm. OwnCloud and NextCloud. Mm -hmm. It happens quite often. I haven't heard a forklift term either, but. I've seen the thing happening quite often in open source. And quite often, not always, it is actually caused by one of the committers grabbing more ownership than he's entitled to, he or she is entitled to, giving discontent mm. to the rest of the people. And at a certain point, just to, I guess, get rid of the disturbing element, lock, stock and barrel, the project moves to a different location, different GitHub repository, and um, that's it. Now. I would say that for a lot of these situations, there is also a commercial uh, driver behind it. If you look yeah. at uh, MariaDB MySQL, basically that's uh, Oracle. Oracle yep. bought MySQL and a lot of commenters said, oh, I don't want to be in the Oracle sphere for whatever reason, not going to go into that there. So they went that way. Uh, OpenOffice, I think, went the same way. Uh, OwnCloud NextCloud was more of an infighting thing, if I remember correctly, same with Barco mm -hmm. and Barreos. So, commercial thing can actually be a um, instigator of something like that happened. And I think that happens because the owner then, the commercial owner, 
isn't adding enough effort to the project. Because if you have a commercial owner and that person or that company actually is committing a lot and it's good and it's building the community and it's doing it the open source way, you probably ain't gonna see a fork happening. But if the commercial entity buys this open source, whatever it is, in an idea of getting that ownership, that's a very fickle thing. You need to nurture the thing or they're just gonna run away. And that's why I have a, well, not a problem with the title of the article you mentioned there, but the whole concept of who owns an open source project. Um, the, the question, the title questions, the, what does they say, the people or the company or something like that? The people or companies. I think there's a third option, nobody. I mean, the, some of the commercial influence that you mention, I think comes from um, the sort of earlier stages of open source where there was a, a sort of very early on a concept that, well, organizations that are sponsoring these projects, for example, they, they no longer have any IP, any intellectual property that they can monetize. And so the, the IP instead becomes sort of to your point kind of earlier focused on the people mm -hmm. and somewhat amusingly uh when i was at red hat many moons ago the even back then you know, rumors were always going around about like who's going to who's going to buy us next and uh and the you know the the topic of of red hat uh and ibm always would would pop up um and you know, back then, the thought was that well, if if that happened, that would be a terrible thing. You can you can argue in the in the YouTube comments whether you think that was a terrible thing or not. But you the the sort of thought back then was you know if if a organization did buy an open source company like Red Hat, then you know everybody would just leave overnight and go to a new company called Blue Hat or Purple Hat or Green Hat and, uh, and, and we start up a brand new organization and you know, they, the, the hostile takeover would be for nothing because they wouldn't have any IP and it would fade away and rah. And of course, the slight irony of all of that is that many, uh, many years later, IBM did indeed buy Red Hat and none of that really came to pass. Um, yes, there are there were you know some people did decide to leave, and there were some kind of moves. But for the most part, Red Hat, its business model, and its approach to most things are still kind of very much intact. Albeit, I'm sure morphing and evolving as as uh, they are wont to do. But it's the the sort of the the shift of mindset from that commercial versus you know the people are the value versus the control of the open source kind of project and or code base like those things it feels to me like they've evolved a lot over the last kind of two decades there's been quite a lot of change in how people think about those things uh, yeah, but there's also another time aspect there, specifically about the Red Hat IBM thing. I mean, if IBM had the 
purchased Red Hat when IBM was at their height, they would have bought it to gain control on something they wanted to control. And that would have given a totally different outcome than what actually happened where, in my opinion, I don't know my opinion, IBM bought Red Hat to become relevant again. They didn't want to control something that so nobody else could control it. They wanted to have the input from an organization that was actually doing better than they were on certain fronts. And they were seeing potential for synergies to make IBM a new kind of company based upon some tenets of open source. And you kind of saw that gradually happen. If you look at IBM over the last five to 10 years, they've been committing more and more to open source. They've been behind projects. I mean, I were at Hortonworks, they were very big sponsors of certain projects in the Hortonworks distribution and stuff like that. So the thing, IBM, the company has changed a lot over time. So again, that's also, even when you started the episode, I was thinking about, okay, this whole thing about uh, how open source is, why it's looked at, People also have changed. Culture has changed. The way yep. open source works has changed. In the beginning, you know, when I started out with this open source thing in the late 80s, I guess, open source was this kind of, I don't know, geeky niche thing. People were just coding some stuff together and kind of building things out of duct tape and, and wire. And it was fun, nothing more than that. Now, open source, look at it any way you want, it's big business. There's no way around yep. it anymore. And that also changes how things work projects also get much, much bigger. There's a big difference between or something like Red Hat getting gobbled up by a big company. It's very hard to just take Red Hat and start again because Red Hat needs a lot of funding to keep all that thing running. Yeah. If you look at yeah. CentOS, for example, one of the consequences is that CentOS has moved to a different, uh, to a different kind of release thing. We're not talking to depth here, but even though Red Hat didn't get a fork or a forklift, whatever you want to call it. CentOS, well, there is some stuff happening there. You have RockDB, uh, RockOS, and there was a second one who are trying to fork it. One, uh, I think the Rock one, the Rocky one was actually founded by the original founder of CentOS again. Maybe mm. that's his way of getting back into fame. We'll see how that works out. These things need time. But CentOS was built on different idea tenant than Red Hat. Red Hat was built upon this needs to be enterprise ready, so we need funding. CentOS, well, if times are lean, we'll release a little bit less fast. And that was fine because that's what CentOS was. So there's differences in all those things. And yeah. again, ownership can be, in my opinion, just a bad thing in open source. The moment somebody claims ownership of something OSS, something's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you see for for all of its uh faults and foibles you see things like um canonical's uh, approach to linux with ubuntu um many people laud it as being um you know one of the one of the leading linux distributions purely in terms of you know adoption and the massive community built around it and other people sort of uh, lambast it for some of its decisions made, some of its sort of uh, not invented here syndrome that mm -hmm. exists within the the the, uh, the distro and, and kind of other things happening there. But the, the evolution of how people consume open source, as you said earlier, it's, it is, it's not just that it's big business, it's the fact that it's it's everywhere now. Like you, you cannot 
like most the majority of organizations could not survive without fairly significant chunks of open source scattered throughout the place so the 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 impact that owning controlling even just understanding open source i think is becoming more and more important I'm going to be a bit unpopular here and kind of contradict that. I do think companies can survive without open source, but they can't compete against companies that embrace open source. But if open source disappeared overnight, companies would find a way. Maybe things will get more expensive, things will get slower. Sure, there will be an effect, but it's not a extinction level event, if I can call it that. But in a world where open source is available, and your competitors aren't perhaps using it, you pretty much don't have a choice than to also embrace it or become a dinosaur because open source has the acceleration. Mm. Mm, maybe, maybe. I, I, I tend to think that it's more pervasive than that. And uh, the, I, I think it would be an extension level event. I mean, no internet, that would be terrible. Internet isn't open source since a long time. But everything that, uh, like 90-something percent of the infrastructure that makes up the internet is built on open source. So, um, pop. Maybe, but again, it's <laughs> it's there, it's easy, people can use it, why the hell would they not? But if it didn't exist, we would still have an internet. It would be different, maybe it's not HTTP, but something else. It'd be controlled, maybe more expensive, I don't care. But if you look at Google, uh, Google Maps, it's not open source, mm -hmm. but it's everywhere, it's available, and that would still have happened with or without the open source things. Would have been but it's built on open source libraries. It it's... might have been slower, different, <laughs> but again, it's nothing is that I important. don't I yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't think you can I don't think you can disentangle open source from all not of anymore. these things. I, I, yeah. I get that it, they're so intertwined at this point that you you couldn't remove open source without becoming yeah, I, not, I, I, not competitive anymore yeah and that's the thing i mean businesses take stuff to be competitive and open source is a has long been a freebie way of getting very hard very fast acceleration to get a new product to market and get in there and start doing things it accelerated a lot of things recently that has kind of, uh, I don't know, the needle went too far in one direction. So there's some pushback happening now in the open source communities. And we'll see how where that ends up in the end. Hopefully it's not going to escalate, but it's going to go back to a new normal. But that's something I think the next five to 10 years is going to be very interesting to watch. But we're getting very far away from our control uh, topic here, because all of these things, in my opinion, have nothing to do with control. Mm, maybe, maybe. But to your to your point, like people are trying to instill more control. People are trying to, in some cases, slow down the pace of innovation, slow down the pace, of the, slow down the acceleration that's happening within open source. And you difficult to do that without control. Do you actually see people trying to stop the acceleration of open source? I do think that uh, certain certain organizations are desperately trying to slow things down because they can't adopt it fast enough. They can't evolve. Their business cannot evolve. They can't adopt the technologies quick enough. I would actually say and that's, that's they can't a problem keep these days. pace with the innovation. 
I mean, five years ago, you had a lot of FUD going around with open source not being safe, not secure, not trustworthy, blah, blah, blah. The bigger ones that were behind that messaging have totally done a 180, I'd say. So I'd say these days, I don't see that effect. I would say not that much of, or not any more compared to five years ago. Mm. I mean, I think the messaging has changed. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I still think that exists. I think larger organizations still struggle to keep up with the pace of open source innovation and would like it very much if uh, things would slow down, please, so they could catch up. Well, there'll always be a couple that haven't have, have missed the train, let's say. But I'd say that the really big organizations out there, if you look at the big five or the big seven, whatever you want to call them these days, they're all pretty much swimming in open source at the moment and adopting it. And again, not through pure altruism because they see an advantage in it because they've accepted the fact that you can't slow it down. You have to adopt it or drown in it and become obsolete. Mm. Any big company that's still in there and is trying to do this, um, again, you can't take control of this thing. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know how to slow down in, uh, internet. I know how to slow down the internet, not the date, <laughs> uh, but how to slow down the innovation of open source. I wouldn't even know how to try to do that. I mean, because of things like forking being so easy, the moment the code is out there, the moment the code is available, uh, it's very hard to do that. And even if you can't take the code with you, as long as the ideas are out there. I mean, I like the example of .NET and the, the, the Mono project from 10 years ago now, I think. Mm. They just went with the ideas, wrote code completely different from the original .NET, and you still had a competing thing. I think the OpenJDK and the Java from Oracle, same mm. kind of idea. It's the same yep. API, but the code inside is totally different. So it have different performance, have different benchmark characteristics, stuff, stuff like that. But again... Different bugs. Uh, Bugs. bugs do not exist. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can make me lose my train of thought there now. But uh, yeah, slowing down. I don't see how you could actually try and slow things down. If you're still trying to do that, you're doing something wrong, I think. No, I, I don't I don't think they are slowing things down. I think they would like oh. things to slow down. Hey, I would like things to slow down. I'm getting older, you know. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, it would be boring. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, we do have a, a bit of a, a bonus topic that I think is is timely and relevant. So um, not going to answer the question, who controls open source, and we're just going to skate over it and. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna leave it there because the answer is who knows? Nobody, everybody. Nobody. I think that's the right, only answer there. <laughs> nobody, nobody of everybody. There we go. It's the same thing basically. <laughs> so again, moving on, moving on. Um, it's, it's a uh, sad day. It is a sad day. Uh, so as we are recording today on the 17th of September, uh, the pioneering Sir Clive Sinclair uh, passed away. And uh, there, there's for those of you following along on YouTube, a little picture of Clive and his uh, his fabulous Sinclair C5. I I have I have seen uh, a couple of these in the flesh. I've never actually have I sat in one. I don't think I've actually sat in one. Uh, but I have certainly seen them, and they are very weird and wonderful little devices. But yeah, end of an era for sure. What was your what was your first uh, sort of micro? If it wasn't for Mr. Sinclair, because he was not a sir back then, I would not have come to IT because my first uh, computing device was a ZX uh, Spectrum 
not a small one, not the ZX80, but the Spectrum was the what somewhat bigger one, right? With 64 kilobytes. The, the of RAM. plus, the ZX Spectrum Plus, the like plastic, hard plastic keys, not the rubbery keys. Uh, no, no, it was the rubbery keys, but it had more than the because you had the ZX80, which was the oldest one, I think. Oh, so yeah, there's so ZX Spectrum 16K or 48K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one I had. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's the uh, that's the ZX Spectrum. So I had the the one that was released, I think, two years later, which was the ZX Spectrum Plus, like this. Uh, this one? Yep. Yeah. No, never had that one. That's the one. Yeah. So that that came out two years later, and that was my first machine, and it's actually completely identical like you can literally swap the board out of the original rubber key uh, zx spectrum and put it in the in the case and it just fits yeah actually i molded my zx spectrum to put a plastic keyboard on top of it because <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the rubber keys after a couple of years you couldn't read the lettering on it anymore. no no i mean it, it was it was great for the 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 time that like the it was the the machine that kind of well was pretty much everywhere at that point the the sort of the spectrum and the um and the commodore 64 were the two i would say kind of most ubiquitous um of the 8-bit micros certainly in in europe I had the Amiga that also came around at the same time. It was more expensive. I'm no, forget. no, that was that was. Well, the the Amiga didn't really get popular until like late eighties. That was like eighty seven when the Amiga five hundred came yeah, out. It was somewhat later, but still, they also joined the pack, and then the whole bunch got uh, obliterated in the IBM PC compatible world. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's been but an actually, empty device for so many people, I think, just being able to write GW basic scripting thingies. Yeah, he went out for it. What is that? I can't see it. Let me make that bigger. So that, this is... It's a um, Commodore. This is my Commodore one. Amiga. My <laughs> Commodore Amiga 500. Um, Still working? It was working when I last put it away. I have not <laughs> tested it for quite some time um but still i still have the box for it i still have uh, a bunch of games and uh, a bunch of other stuff for it but it, it's you know uh, the the spectrum was something that got me interested in in computers and in tech but i think the amiga was where that sort of shifted from sort of Oh, this is like a, an interesting toy, the, mm -hmm. the Spectrum. Like, I was not interested in coding or anything like that. I'm still not that interested in coding or development. Um, but I'm still working on people. We'll get him so far. <laughs> you really won't. But the the Amiga was the first thing that sort of showed me that computers could have some some real power, and I was fascinated by, um, especially like the early demo scene and things like that where you 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 could see some amazing visuals being cranked out by i mean something that doesn't even have the the power that a modern day toaster has at this point um 
you know the the sort of the efficiencies that people would go to in their coding development to produce like sound and video in in kind of tiny tiny um, packages it, it sort of that still stays with me today when I you know you occasionally see these um, like game fests where you know people produce games in you know in tiny sort of sizes or in you know cranking out a game in 24 hours or you know all those kind of things and that sort of I'm far more interested and excited in in that than I am necessarily in some of the sort of huge big budget stuff that gets cranked out it's sort of that just speaks to me and back to my earlier days yeah, I guess it's different these days. You have to be a lot less careful. There's a lot more capacity on these things. So, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the big AAA titles coming out these days, it's not like they're bug-free and very much better than what we did then. But I actually programmed on my little TEDx Spectrum. I did the first couple of years of my higher education on that little thing. And then I was able to exchange it with somebody else for a XTPC. Mm. 8088 XT. That was that was a big upgrade. Yeah, I I went from Spectrum Plus, Amiga 500, to I think it was a 486. I think it was a 486 DX4100. Turbo. Well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> the the tur turbo button, the fact that it works in reverse is still hilarious to me. But the, and that was Windows 3.1, DOS 6.2. And I think it had a massive four megabytes of RAM that I upgraded mm. to eight. And later on, I think I got it to 16, but... Um, mm. Yeah, one of the huge expansions on my first PC was a hard disk that costs me about four or six months of my little side job I had at the time when I was still in uh, education, uh, teaching uh, in school, and that was a twenty so gigabytes, probably twenty mm. gigabytes hard disk. Yeah, that was that was a lot. Yeah, could have been, could have been. I know I, I never I never got I think I kept my Amiga for a lot longer um, and that that was my mainstay for pretty much through until leaving school actually I think and I, I didn't I didn't move across to a PC until after that so things had moved on a little bit I was able to kind of dabble in the earlier stages i remember kind of upgrading to windows 95 was a huge thing and then i discovered this it's a lot late well yeah but that that was much much later but i that was also like the time between windows uh 3.1 and, and 95 was also the time that i discovered linux open source mm -hmm. and slackware and many 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 floppy disks of like downloaded um archive sites of op all sorts of open source software that you would download compile run yourself and then of course 
CDs became a thing and you could order a CD of like Sunsight archive and you'd just have more software than you knew what to do with, no idea what to do with it. You don't order but, that. It came with those paper magazine things that used to exist. Yeah, but if you wanted if you wanted particular sites, then you you could get those you could get them get the archives on CD. But yeah, as you say, like the then magazines started to popularize it, and you had all sorts of stuff coming out there. But it was the the still the um, I can't well, I can't remember the next next machine I went from the four eight six. I think I possibly, I think I skipped the early Pentiums. And I think it was a Pentium 2, 333 megahertz. Possible. Yeah. I think that was, that was the era of kind of Windows 95 and that side of things. Yeah. I went a long time, a long time on PC before that. I mean, the reason I went to a PC was not for Linux or something like that, but simply because in the later years of my education, I had to program COBOL and C, and we could do that at mm. school, but then you were actually de developing stuff on the central heating system, because there was a mini <laughs> computer that was actually plugged into the central heating system. And that was, the fun thing about that thing was that we could actually crash it. So whenever we had an exam coming up and we didn't study, we just crashed the computer and had to uh, delay the exam. So that was an easy way of uh, scheduling it according to our needs. But it was annoying, so I needed something at home to, to write that stuff. So that's why I went to a PC. But it took me, I think, four or five years before I actually went into anything Windows-like. Before Windows, had another thing. So it's called Gem or something? Gem. Yeah, yeah. I, I used Gem OS. for a while, but I never got, got it to work reliably, to be honest. No, no, it was... it was. I used that at work um, very early on. And, yeah, that was... So at the same time as uh, Windows, well, I think Gem may have predated Windows just 3 a bit, yeah. just a little bit. But by the time that I was using it, both Gem and initial sort of Windows were both around at that time. And there was sort of, there was a mixture of them around and I happened to be doing things that were on a mixture of Gem. And then, I mean, I was using... Um, I was kind of mainly doing a lot of stuff on mainframes at that point. Mm -hmm. So like Tektronics terminals and graph plotting and a bit of programming, which I was terrible at and still am to this day and still loathe. Um, and sort of early days of the, the, the things that shifted for me then were the mainframe was still used very heavily for a lot of um, computational thermodynamics and modeling, mainly in, in Fortran, hmm. um, which is still today used very heavily in, in engineering circles. But the, the thing that then shifted, which I know is, is something dear to your heart, is um, computational fluid dynamics became more of a thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, Unix was, was there and in the forefront and you had uh, SGIs and uh, HPUX and SunOS and later on Solaris and all of the all of the Unix machines were kind of scattered throughout the workplace. Uh, the the SGIs certainly have a special place in my heart, mm -hmm. and I know they do for you as well. Yeah, spent thirteen years at SGI. 
best time of my life. At least that's how I remember it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, time. so, I mean, it, it all grew from there, but none of this, oh, like, I, I wonder, I wonder what this would have looked like if the, if that hadn't started off with the spectrum. I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm sure something else would have plugged in the gap, but it was, uh, it was something that very much changed my worldview. Yeah, it's actually a, maybe coming back to a previous topic of the episode, it was an accelerating event that had nothing to do with open source, but just making it mm. commoditized, making it available to a lot more people. It's a little bit like the whole data scientist, AI, machine learning thing is going today. Because the tooling gets much more accessible, much more commoditized, much more easy to use, more people start using it and you get that huge acceleration of the whole environment. And that spectrum definitely was at least for home computing but i think also um, maybe this bad spectrum was the start of the demise of the mainframe still not there but <laughs> i tell you i've said this before <laughs> i will say it many more times again mainframes and cockroaches will outlast us all i think the mainframe will outlast the cockroach and on that note unless you have something else to add nothing else from me then that is all the time you have to reminisce and go down memory lane you can support the podcast if you like this kind of content you can come to patreon contributions do help us we're also on youtube if you want to see us gesticulate and share screen images and stuff like that youtube is your way to go you can go to www.roadingalpha.org there's links to the patreon page and the youtube page and other stuff about the podcast you can follow me on twitter by time from time to time using the ad roaring elephant tag and you can send feedback by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org until next time my name is i miss Cobol so much john oh god <laughs> my name is manic minor dave oh yeah <sighs> We look forward and sometimes backward to talking to you again next week. Goodbye. See you then. Manic Miner. Wow. I could have said Jet Set Willy. That was, yeah. that was the other option. Jet, jet or back, even Jet Pack Willy. No, Jet Jet Set Willy. I, I know Jet Pack Willy. Jet Pack was Jet Pack was another thing. And then there's there's um uh Horace. Horace goes skiing. Nah, don't like sport games. Not in real life, not in computers. <laughs> I mean, it was barely a sports game. <laughs> <laughs>